You're listening to the Modern People Leader Podcast. Today's episode will be a part of our People Leader Series, where we go behind the scenes with today's top HR leaders and talk to them about how they've gotten to where they're at and what they really do every day. Hope you enjoy. Adam, I'm so glad that we're finally doing this. I was looking back at the revision history of our prep call notes, and I didn't realize that the first time that we connected was back in July. So this is a long mm-hmm. time coming, and I'm glad that we're making this happen. I know we have a ton of mutual connections. Someone that, that we talk about on the show all the time is Jessica Zvon. I know that you you know her yeah. as well. So super excited to have you. How have things been? Yeah, it's been an awesome few months since we spoke actually and yeah i can't believe it was july actually that we first connected and super stoked to be joining you both as well because there's some pretty amazing names that you've had on the podcast over the time so um joining that group is yeah really really cool so thank you for having me we're so glad to have you so let's go into good news stories so every episode we kick off the exact same way that's with good news stories could be something personal could be something work-related but just a way to start the show off on a positive note. And we like to let our guests go first. So, um, so yeah, do you have anything? Yeah, I've got one personal one work. Um, personal, I'm probably a little bit early with this, but at the time of re- recording, I'm probably a few days away from my third baby being born. So my wife's due on the 13th December. So any moment now, there'll be an, an, another addition to the household. So I'm just getting ready for that. And on the work front, not ideal timing, I suppose, from that point of view, but open orgs really starting to ramp up, which is really cool. So um, we've had an amazing few weeks, momentum's building, our accreditation pipeline is starting to build, which is really encouraging. What's well, been a pretty tough year for lots of people, I think. So it feels like there's momentum and wind in the sails. That's excellent news. So baby coming any day now, that's mm. congratulations. And congratulations on all the progress and success with open org. That's also very exciting. Thanks. Steven, do you want to go next? Yeah, I'll go next. So for years, and Adam, I'm not exaggerating at all. For years and years, Daniel has been strongly encouraging me. It's probably the nicest way to put it, to be more active in LinkedIn, to really have a social presence. This is before proceeds, like even the modern people leader existing. And for one reason or another, I just never did it. And I think part of that, I'm not very active on social media. Like I'll consume some content, but I've really, I don't know, five years ago did like an about face with social media. And to me, like LinkedIn, like, yeah, it's professional, but it's still social media. And I think the other part was just some imposter syndrome. Like, what do I have to say that is really going to be that interesting or compelling to people? Well, I finally committed to it and we're like a month in. And first of all, thank you, Daniel, for strongly encouraging me for all these years and for being patient with me. But it is completely overwhelming to me, the engagement. And so I checked the metrics yesterday because we're about to I'm about to start my second month of activity. And so far in the initial month, I had more than 150,000 impressions, which if I had gotten 5,000 impressions, I would have been like, oh, wow, cool but 150,000 impressions in a month. And it's pretty easy to like measure that in my LinkedIn profile because it was like zero before and then like huge bump. And for the last couple of weeks, I've been, well, for Thanksgiving, I was out of the office, so it was off grid. But that's my work good news is I am committed, I'm engaged and other people are engaging as well, which is super, super exciting. And I'm grateful for everyone out there that has taken a second to read the content I've published. And then on the personal front, like this is our second episode this week. I probably sound a lot better. Obviously, our audience won't hear these back to back. But man, I was still suffering pretty bad on Monday or Tuesday, whenever that was. And so I'm feeling better, even better now. So that's my personal good news. Glad you're feeling better. And I'm glad that you're finally posting on on social. I've only been telling you for seven years now. So <laughs> it only took seven years. Okay, so my good news, we have a scorecard at the Modern People Leader that measures a bunch of different things. And it's something that we update. Literally everything. Yeah, like literally everything. And, you know, we're updating it weekly. And it's a combination of things that we can control and easily quantify that we know if we do them over and over and over again, it will be good for our business. And then we have the results of those actions that we're also tracking the metrics of. So for 2023... We've posted 350 times on social media. We've published 63 episodes. We've created 220 video clips from those episodes. 
We've wrote 45 newsletters and we've done over 105 sales reach outs to different companies. And from doing those same things over and over again, our podcast listenership has grown by 250%. Our newsletter has grown by 300%. Our company page is now over 5,000 followers, which still isn't a lot. But I mean, at the beginning right. of the year, we were just over like 1,000, I believe. And we just closed our ninth sponsorship deal this morning. So all that to say, my good news story is that it just feels so gratifying to see all of our hard work finally paying off. And I'm sure you can relate to this as an entrepreneur, but sometimes when you get stuck in those plateaus, it can be really frustrating. And that can last a week, that can last a month, that can last two months. It really just depends, but you just have to keep going and doing the same things over and over again. But when you really zoom out and look at like the last year, it's like, wow, we've we've accomplished so much and we're starting to see that compounding effect. So yeah, that's my good news story. And now a good news story from the Leapsum team. And that's the news that Leapsum recently brought on Luck Dukchitra as their first ever VP of people. I know Steven was so jealous when he heard about Luck's new role. You know, his his dream job is to be the people leader of a leading HR tech company. I think he's described it as the perfect blend of marketing, people ops, and product work. So congrats to Luck on the new role. And selfishly, we just can't wait to have her on the show to hear about the work that she's doing. I know that Leapsum is doing some really cool stuff on the AI front with surveys and reviews, which I'd be really curious to learn more about. But uh, that was that was some good news from Leapsum. If you want to learn why over 1,500 companies choose Leapsum as their single platform for things like goals, surveys, and reviews, go to leapsum.com slash MPL. That's leapsum.com slash MPL. And now back to the show yeah both are linked to, uh i was gonna say congrats Stephen, on the uh the impressions you're gonna probably uh hate linkedin and, and the algorithm before you know it it's uh yeah i'm sort of i live my entire life on linkedin daily now post daily there's times where you create content that you spend ages on and you think yeah this is going to do really well and then there's times where you post something just off the top of your head and it, that's the one that flies so you end up scratching your head a little bit at times but i think to Daniel's point, it's the consistency. I hadn't used LinkedIn much for a quite a while before this year. And in January, I, I did the same as you, Stephen. I dusted it off and said, I'm going to be a little bit more active. And it's taken a year really to build audience, but it's so cool to zoom out and see what you've done. So yeah, congrats. That's really, really cool news. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. So walk us through the Adam Horn story. So my memory needs some refreshing from when we first caught up. I remember you were briefly a recruiter. And then you started your own company and then you pivoted the company and then you grew it and then you left and now you're doing this. I know that's a very like quick summary, but help me fill in some of those gaps. Yes. Yeah, high level for you. Spent the last 12 years in the people and talent world. First few years as a graduate working for a big recruitment agency, well-known name globally called Hayes. Um, loved it. Big corporate company, but I loved it as a young graduate. But uh, during that time, I identified what I thought was a big gap in the job board market. And as a young 21, 22 year old thought, Hey, let's go build a job board, saved up a heap of cash and decided to go and build it and, and did that. And probably quite naively, but that was my first step into entrepreneurship, I suppose, as a 23 year old thinking I was going to go build the next big job board and did it for a couple of years, ticked over, managed to pay myself and, and keep myself going. But it, it wasn't that sort of hockey stick sort of, takeoff, which I was probably hoping to see. And, and I, it wasn't a funded company either. So bootstraps, the realization of if this is going to take off, it's going to need some funding and some backing to build audience and marketing, et cetera. And I've never been someone who has been interested in VC funding or I'm going down that route, big bootstrap fan. So decided to shelve that, met a co-founder who I launched a recruitment agency with, and we worked together for about seven years or so with a pandemic in between that. So in the process of building up a, a specialist boutique recruitment agency focused on working with startups and scale-ups all over the world, COVID hit, put the brakes on that. And then we had to pivot our business to a company that was focused more on embedded talent, which is well-known in the US to a degree, but much, much bigger in the UK and, and Europe for sure. But that pivot was huge for us. Despite launching that company effectively from scratch in August, 2020, the timing was perfect. Uh, it blew up and we we just flew with the big 2021 bubble that, that followed. So 
we grew that team in about 18 months from two of us to 72 people. I wore the co-founder people slash COO hat as well along that ride and absolutely loved it whilst also working quite hands-on with clients still at that point and actually departed that business at the end of last year and I've ended up launching uh, OpenOrg, although the original idea for OpenOrg wasn't in my head when I left, which was interesting. The thing that actually spurred me on to launch OpenOrg or co-found OpenOrg with my current co-founder was my time for the first time in 12 years as an applicant, this time last year, actually, in fact, stepping away from being co-founder for, for so long, I was actually quite excited to go and work for a CEO, be employed somewhere, not have to be the founder, the owner, the entrepreneur. So I spent some time applying to roles. And ironically, despite being in the people and talent space for so long, and probably knowing that the candidate experience wasn't that great out there, I was still horrified applying to roles, going through interview processes, trying to understand more about inf more information about companies, but not getting my hands on it made me realize how how bad and broken this process is. And it took me back to how I used to do things differently as a founder. And I've always defaulted to being open. We've had open handbooks, public handbooks. As a recruiter in the past, I've had access to very transparent companies as clients and very secretive companies as clients. I've seen how they've it's been done on both sides. And all of that experience and realizations pulled into conversations with my now co-founder. And that, that eventually led to, to OpenOrg, which we launched this year. What an amazing story. So if I'm counting correctly, is that four companies that you've started now? Yeah, in total, it's okay. the fourth one. Okay. And I guess, what do you wish you knew back when you were 21, when you first became an entrepreneur? What are some of the biggest lessons learned? I love this question. Honestly, one of them is um, there's always little lessons you learn incrementally along the way as well. And I look back at my last company now, even though it was great, we did well, and there were great times. There's so many lessons you learn with hindsight. If I could go back and do it again now, there's a couple of things I would do. One is be more intentional about building audience, which is what we've just been talking about as well. Back in 2013, I don't think it was such a big thing, to be honest. So probably wouldn't have known that I could do that or have the ability to do it. But I think the big thing for me actually is actually building a network of other entrepreneurs and founders around me. I've had this conversation a lot with people recently, and actually first-time founders can be a nightmare to work with from a people person's perspective. Very secretive, very closed off. You, you default to trying to fix everything and do everything on your own. So if I could do it all over again, going back to the sort of first time actually would be spend more time getting to know other people in my situation because I've done that now and the people that I've connected with, gotten to know, built relationships with and soundboarded with has been amazing. So I've missed out on a lot in hindsight by not doing that sooner. That's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. And I was, me and my wife were having dinner with another couple a couple weeks ago and the guy, his name is Dan and he runs a community of entrepreneurs and most of them are like companies that require like little to no capital. So they're really interesting business models. And one thing that he challenged me on, he's like, you should talk to the two or three people that you're competing with that you're like afraid to talk to. You need to have recurring touch points with them, whether it's monthly, quarterly, there's enough room for everybody to do really well. So something I've been thinking about is like putting together, I don't know, like a quarterly meetup of HR podcasters or people that have HR media companies or even people like you. I mean, I know we don't do the exact same thing, but I'm sure there's a lot of overlap. So if you're open to it, would love to invite you to the the first one of those that we have. It's not planned yet, but here's your invite. Definitely. And we're in. We talked about having a podcast on our own one day. Uh, and we've got a million or one things on our on our roadmap to, to get through. But yeah, it's I would encourage it. We less relevant to me now, but six months or so before I departed my last company, we actually joined this sort of collective, as it were, that was set up of other embedded talent companies in the UK. Met for a couple of breakfast meetings, lunch meetings. All these founders that you see online or know, know of, but have never had conversations with all of a sudden in one room together. And we were also in the middle of a really deep economic crisis as well, which I think we all know about. And it was actually just really comforting to chat to other founders and actually know that we're going through a really tough time at the moment, but all of these other founders are having the same struggles, the same problems, and we're not doing anything wrong here. It's just the climate and having that support, that network. It was really cool, actually, and I stayed in touch with a lot of the founders, even though I've moved on to a different type of company now, still network and speak to a lot of them. I think that's great advice. So I, I received similar but slightly different advice in like 2015, 2016, when I was still growing my, the company that I sold this year, Workify. 
And I reached out, come to find out there was like in that as part of that HR tech cycle, there were three or four HR startups here in Austin. There was like four or five of us. And someone in this community was like, yeah, you should try to get everyone together. And I was trying to get like a recurring thing in place, but it just was too challenging with everyone's schedules. And But I did with two of the founders, I built relationships that exist to the, all the way to today. And I catch up with those CEOs. They were like super helpful. They shared like terms and growth rates and like things that you just, it's so hard to get and is so, can be so crucial to really like understanding, are we in a good place? Are we in a bad place? It's easy with your co-founders to have happy ears and happy eyes. And so having those people in your network to bounce things off of is really, really important in my opinion. So if we could do that with you, Adam, I think that would be really, really awesome. For sure. So tell us more about Open Org. I love the concept of it, but if you ran into somebody on the street, a stranger that you're meeting for the first time, how would you describe what Open Org does? Yeah, honestly, we've struggled heavily to try and describe this to friends and family. I think if you're trying to describe it to a, a people person, they get it, they understand it, and it's easier to communicate to. But we try and position it a little bit like this because I think a lot of people have, have been through this type of situation themselves as well. So we often say to people, have you ever joined a new company, a new employer and realized once you're in that it's not quite what was sold to you at interview stage. Nothing, it doesn't quite line up. There's that, that sort of something's a bit missing and that, that could be the culture, the work environment, the people, how you're compensated. You sometimes get these little bits of, of surprises along the way that erode trust a little bit and it's not quite what you thought. Um, we're working to prevent that from happening in the future. We have an accreditation that we work with companies on to make sure that what they're telling people externally on careers pages, job adverts, all their employer branding, everything outward facing completely aligns and matches to the experience you get internally within a business. And that's fully accredited and verified by us as a business externally, but it's also verified by that company's employees as well. So what you see is what you get effectively as an applicant, but the benefits you get as an employee within a business like that are huge because we're along the way to that accreditation, working with companies to really elevate certain cultural elements of their business as well. I know you're in your your chief people officer role search. You need to go look at all the, the list of the companies on, on OpenOrg. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I was thinking about that earlier. And one of the things, Adam, that you mentioned in the prep meeting that we had was that you are like a culture geek, a culture junkie. And I'm just curious, where did that come from? Where did that kind of obsession with culture? Because in my experience, most founders, when they launch a company, there is like an obsession. With Workify, I was obsessed with the notion that you could make work better. You know, we spend more time with our colleagues than we do with our loved ones. We all deserve to have a better work experience. And so that was my passion and what I was in. Interestingly enough, it was very much tied to culture. I thought the secret was if to unlock culture. And my solution was like taking a data-driven approach to do that. And so I'm just curious, what was like your culture journey? And like, how did this become an obsession for you? Really good question. I'll try and answer. I think that there's a combination of things that, that spring to mind. I've worked as a founder or co-founder for the majority of my career, albeit three years at the start as, as a graduate in this corporate environment. But most of the companies I've had previously have been incredibly small companies. I'm talking like one employee to six employees before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I think to a degree, when you're working with such a small group of employees, that I think is quite powerful if you do it in the right way. But, but for me, it was very natural to say, actually, got one employee, I'm not going to treat you like an employee, I'm going to treat you like an adult, and almost as if you're a co founder. And I've always had that sort of level of trust and autonomy that I've given to people. And for me, that, that feeds heavily into my view of working culture and how you get your best work done. So I've defaulted to that way of working, I suppose, and treating people throughout my time as a founder co founder, that was really accelerated very, very quickly in 2020, when we launched my last business scout because we grew very, very quickly. We were hiring five, six people a, a month as a bootstrapped business at this time. And that was really interesting, but I found it fascinating. I, I wore the, the people hat as well as the operations hat. So having done it a couple of times on a much smaller scale, I was really excited to say, hey, we're going to build from day one a public handbook on Notion. We're going to set our values and our you know behaviors 
very, very early on, we co-created and we pulled the first six, seven employees together and used them to build that with us as well. And I just became more and more fascinated with it as I saw the benefits of it and I saw how well it was working as we grew. I just thought this is, I love this. You become obsessed. And alongside that, that sort of track of me doing that throughout my career, I've got my now co-founder, John. We've been friends for 12 years. For 12 years, we've met up socially over beers, over drinks, and he's big on culture as well. He's had a very different experience and, and career to me, but always huge on, on culture and workplace and culture transformation within larger companies as well. Whenever we get together, we talk about culture at work, how it's broken, how one day we'll fix it together. We don't know how or what, or, you know, but we will, and we'll find this solution. And it's really cool actually now, 12 years later, over all this time, our paths and our like stars have aligned a little bit to the point where we now are heading out with open org with very different tracks and experiences, but very aligned on what we believe you know, we can do around workplace culture. Yeah. And I, I think that diversity of experience, perspective, I think probably serves you guys really, really well. So thanks for sharing that story. And so let, let's talk a little bit about transparency. One of the, I guess, more recent changes that we've made to our this conversation format is we added when it became clear during the pandemic that, oh, actually the future is not remote working or hybrid and the pendulum's going to swing back, that it was like, what the hell's going on? And so we, we started this state of the union. And I want to focus this particular state of the union on HR on the topic of transparency. You have a unique vantage point. Not only do you have your own data, but you also have an assessment that measures companies in several, several dozens of factors. And then you have cohorts of companies and people leaders you're working with. So what are you hearing in these cohorts? What are you seeing in your data as it relates to where we are today with respect to HR, the challenges that teams are facing, you know, specifically around transparency? Great question. We're still building data set, of course, because it's early days, but we've seen a heap of very interesting trends already, albeit on a small scale. So I, I guess I'd chop into two sides. One, in terms of what we're seeing from the community, because that's been really interesting. The way that we work at OpenLog is we have a lot of chat in our Slack community, but we run very, very hands-on action-orientated cohorts. And we spend a lot of time one-on-one -on -one with people leaders. So it's fascinating to, to get stuck into their businesses, their top-of-mind challenges. And something that comes up in every single conversation almost is the topic around influencing leadership and how tricky that is working with leadership teams, influencing them, tricky founders, tricky CEOs. How do I influence? How do I build business cases for these things? That's always something that we people need help with. And that ties in a lot at the moment with conversations going around data and, and influencing leadership teams with data. So that, that's something that we see a lot from the community. Top of mind challenges that seem to trend when we speak to people leaders tend to be diversity compensation, which is obviously a big narrative, particularly in the US and Europe as well at the moment, but also career progression frameworks and development that that ties in quite heavily. They're, they tend to be the three big ones that people want help on and need support on. And we sort of actually see that in the data a little bit as well. So we found it really interesting. We've got our framework that we built at OpenOrg to act as a diagnostic and a roadmap for people leaders to almost like heat map their organization around transparency. So these 30, almost 35 areas soon actually it's growing, but we can see from a high level what companies are transparent about and what they aren't generally speaking. And there's two sides to this actually. One is how they score themselves. And actually that the other side is how we score them. So number one is companies always see themselves as being more transparent than, than we would officially see it. And number two is the areas where they seem to be transparent or not. So you talked just now about hybrid remote, the change with the pandemic. Funny enough, that's one of the areas that companies still are really, really vague about. And it's been a tough thing to get right, but lots of companies say that they are transparent about when they work from working hours perspective and where they work. But when we look, actually, it's not clear at all. So it, there's an interesting thing going on there with companies thinking they're being clear and, and, and adding clarity to this, but what we would define as being transparent is not there. So there's a real lack on the when and where we work piece. And then the other key area actually that's that's really missing for a lot of companies at the moment is career development and transparency around how can I progress within this organization. On your first point around you're hearing in Slack and your one-on-one -on -one time with people leaders that influencing leadership or working with tricky CEOs is like one of the biggest problems. I think we talked about this in our last call, but we've done our own research. We've done, I think like 
10-ish customer development interviews where we're interviewing chief people officers. And this consistently comes up as the number one problem. And similar to how you and your co-founder would meet up for beers and talk about culture and obsess over how you're going to solve this problem. That's sort of like where me and Steven are right now. So it's validating to hear it from another source. So yeah, I just wanted to say that. And so going back to one of the points you made around companies feeling like they're super transparent, like, first of all, it doesn't surprise me that there's a mm. disconnect between how the company perceives itself and externally how it's viewed. But just so I understand, when you talk about companies having these policies and thinking that they're very clear and understandable and accessible, like what differentiates having a company policy and being transparent about said policy? Yeah, it's interesting. Again, I'll split it up sort of internal transparency and external transparency, but I had a conversation with a friend recently who's a head of people and who's having some challenges internally with employees who had an issue with their flexible working policy. And even though they'd set something out for them, people kept questioning it and pushing back. And I asked to have a look at the policy and, and there was some wording in this internal policy. I can't remember the exact wording, but it says something like, we encourage you to come into the office two days a week. The actual leadership team, what they were saying was, we need you in the office two days a week, that this is something that we do. So immediately I, I said, that's a huge problem for you. Using that word encourage, tiny, tiny, tiny thing within a policy is going to give people the impression that they have a choice still. If your leadership team is saying you have to come into the office two days a week, you have to be clear and explicit with the language that you use. So some of the work that we do is really deep diving on people's policies. It's, it's to really understand through a, an objective, almost employee driven lens to see like, how would someone in your business read this and interpret this? And can we get you to understand that? So we look out for these tiny tweaks and that that's an example of internal transparency where companies feel like they're being really clear, but actually they're, they're really not. And I think that's an example of a company that is trying to be more flexible than it can actually be because it's trying to please everyone and trying to look more flexible and actually it's not helping them. And externally, I guess it's not quite as detailed as that because lots of companies aren't sharing policies externally, some do, but it's just getting a little bit lost with the terms of like hybrid and remote and flexible working. So if you look at a typical career site and job advert, you'll get mixed messaging at the moment. You'll see that there's some messaging around flexible working, but no detail around what that actually means. You might then see on an advert that it says fully remote. And then somewhere in the advert, it might say something like, you know, we actually come into the office once a week. So that's a very typical example of what an applicant sees right now. And, and the reality is they're left in this sort of area of like, I don't really know what the expectations are. And people care deeply about this in today's world. So it's, it might sound boring, but I say to companies, you need to be putting down working hours on ads because we need that now. And if you have no working hours, great. Tell people that, but be explicit. Yeah, it's so interesting. While you were talking, I immediately thought of my partner's company. And so my partner, she works in HR for a large, like 12,000 person company. So like what I would consider midsize and their policy changed. Feels like almost every company a year or so after COVID and their policy was we're going to set up these centers of excellence and we're only hiring into these centers of excellence. And the centers of excellence, in some cases, were brand new offices, were like brand new hubs that before mm -hmm. just wouldn't have been like a major office. And that was it. And I'm exaggerating here for illustration purposes, but you know, I'm sure there were more details they included. But everyone, what they didn't consider was like, oh, we have all of these grandfathered remote employees and we're not terminating them but they don't work in the centers of excellence. So there's all of this confusion around mm. like, what is exactly the policy? Because you're saying we're only hiring into these centers of excellence. And if you want a career here, you've got to be in one of the four or five centers of excellence. However, I see Jane over here, Bob, and they're in Idaho or wherever, Austin, yeah. Texas, that just doesn't add up. So like, what the heck? This can't be the actual policy. Like, what gives? And I don't know if you see a lot of that, but that's, that was like immediately what came up for me. And the second thing, and, and this might be a bit of a blind spot for me, is 
the notion of when I think transparency, I think internal, like you broke it into the two buckets. I almost 100%, even in preparation for this conversation, was only really thinking about internal transparency. But what I hear you saying is you can't stop there, that you should be sharing the same level, maybe not the same level of details, but representative details externally regarding your policies. And that I grew up at Ernst & Young and Goldman Sachs, like you just didn't do that. You didn't share your, like, those are your state secrets. And so I'm curious on the second point that I just made, is there a lot of resistance? Are, are we yet at a point where companies are really starting to embrace? I know the GitLabs, they're like a handful of pioneers. Atlassian probably is another, but it still feels like to me that it's still the minority, not the majority. And so I'm just curious on that external point, what you're seeing. Yeah. And both are really key um, because that internal transparency is great, but that's only great once you're through the door. And once you already know, I'm going to thrive here, the culture's right, the people are right, what I've been sold is right. So if you want to hire the right people who are going to thrive in your business, you need to embrace that external transparency so that people can self-select out if they need to during that interview process and be really fully informed as an applicant. Will I thrive in this culture? And there's so much you can do with transparency to show people that. So internal is amazing and it's the first step because you can't do external without that, but getting the two aligned and, and fully in sync is vital for me in terms of aligning sort of candidate experience with people experience. So that's the key thing. And I think are people embracing it? It's a slow change, but we're seeing some really amazing, promising things happening. I should point out OpenOrg is very heavily focused on startup scale up world. So our, our typical company that we would work with could be 30 employees up to 500, that sort of space, probably in the tech world or outside, that's fine. But what we don't do is necessarily is work with big corporate companies. And interestingly, was speaking to a friend's dad the other day who's been in HR for a very long time for a very big corporate company uh, trying to explain open org to him. And he said, oh, we wouldn't have needed that there. Everyone everyone really knows what they're going to get. And I think that was a really good point, actually. You mentioned Ernst & Young. There are some big corporate companies that have been around for a long time, already have the reputation externally through hearsay, through, through size of, I sort of know what I'm going to be getting in that business. It's going to be long hours. It's going to be hard work. Right. So... I, I, I do understand that some big companies might say we don't need to do that. People know about us, which is fair, but smaller startup scale-ups who don't have that market reputation, that word of mouth spread, they need to be more intentional with showing people what that looks like. And and it's it's happening, but it's a slow, slow change, I would say. So we've been really lucky to have some people on the show like Hugh Hamarani, who, you know, formerly was at Airbnb and led the Live and Work Anywhere program. Darren Murph, Jessica Zvon, Nadia, I always mess up her last name, so I'm not even going to try it. Brandon Samet from Zapier. And the one thing that these people leaders have in common is they've all embraced the open source movement in HR. And they all either worked for a CEO or a founder that gets it. And a lot of times, like their CEO is the one leading some of these initiatives, these open source movements. Like I think of Atlassian, a company that, mm. you know, we're actually going to interview somebody, Annie Dean, we're, we're going to interview her, her in a couple of weeks. Nice. And I think it's okay to say this because this should go live <laughs> after they launch this playbook, but they're basically open sourcing team anywhere, I think is what they're calling it. Yeah. So more to come there. Hopefully I'm not jumping the gun. But for the people leaders that want more transparency for their company, both internally and externally, but don't know how to even like bring this conversation up with their CEO, or maybe you're like unsure of how it's going to be received, like what advice would you give to them? Yeah, good question. And hey, I, I've connected and, and worked with some of these really super transparent companies, and, and some of them have become our first accredited open orgs. And actually... The journey to that has been so much easier when you've got a CEO or a founder who's fully aligned, you can just run riot and do what you want to the extreme in, in some examples, which is amazing. But actually the reality is 99% of the people that we meet and speak to will be those people leaders who have, have some resistance and friction and some work to do there. What I've seen historically, and I've seen it in my own companies as well, is leading with your gut too much. People leaders get very passionate about their people. They, I'm not saying they don't use the data, but I think that there's a big conversation at the moment about trying to fashion a more commercial minded people leader who maybe can connect with CEOs, founders on a commercial level and understand how to build a business case around 
business goals and objectives and show CEOs and founders how making certain changes are actually going to impact the business rather than the people, which I know might seem like a slightly um, backward suggestion for people either to hear, but if you're able to do that, the impact on your people will happen. So it's just about manipulating, I suppose, or influencing is probably a nicer word to use to, in a positive way to get what you need to do. So my advice usually very, very high level is, is identify a trigger. It could be some challenges in the business. It could be something deep rooted that's going wrong at the moment that you believe could be fixed by being more open or being more transparent in, about something. Don't just take that to the CEO or the founder and say, hey, we need to do this to fix this. It's not going to work. CEOs, founders, typically this is probably reducing it way too much, but they want to know, can you save me money or can you make me money? Can these changes that we make do one of these two things to impact my business? And if you can prove one of those two things with data, then you're on a good path to, to making change happen. So that's a really very sort of uh, simplified thought track. But if you can find a way of building a business case around transparency, but link it heavily to productivity, profitability, changes to the business bottom line, I think that that's a really key thing to be able to do. Is this something that you've coached some of your clients on or people that are a part of the academy? And if so, are you able to share, I guess, any stories? You don't have to share like company names or people or the names of the people, but I'm curious if 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 you've coached somebody on this and ended up working out. Yeah, it's super interesting how it's worked out. So our first, our very first ever cohort we did, we couldn't do any of this because actually that first group of people who joined us, they're the pioneers who have been doing this stuff for a while. You're like your whereby's and and your figures and your duros of this world. So it was amazing to have this group of people there. But actually the downside, if there was one, was like, they were all like, yeah, not been a problem. We can go and do what we want. So we didn't have any of these conversations because they didn't have these blockers. We have seen more of it in following cohorts, groups of people that we've seen to follow. This tends to be a big problem. I can't probably share too many um, specific details or names or, or scenarios, but it is something that that comes up, not necessarily the same level of resistance for every single person, but slightly different types of business cases that need to be drawn up. For example, one around diversity and how they can impact and change that. There was a business, for example, that outwardly was saying, hey, we're, we're doing, we're setting up offices in these places to push for better diversity in our company. We're on a big branding effort to, to show ourselves a more diverse business, but internally nothing's happening, nothing's changing. So that individual needed a bit of a plan to build a business case around how they could influence leadership to actually make these changes. And then there was a lot of like, try and utilize like what if scenarios, try and visualize a, a moment where there's a newspaper headline, for example, about your business. If you don't do this and someone finds out, imagine newspaper headlines tomorrow and what they say, and, and are you prepared for that to happen? And so we have these conversations around not just what's the trigger, but also what's your route to success to influence. So we have another guest that's set to join us hopefully here in the next few weeks. And when we met a couple months ago, they shared how they've created transparency on diversity. And what they've done is they've created like an internal like index. So they have seven factors that they measure. And I think they call it their leadership index or something like that. And if you can imagine like a live dashboard and at any given time, the 200 most senior people in the company are being measured on this index and anybody can go in and see it. I mean, like, I can't think of like a more transparent way of showing how your leaders are doing on diversity and holding them accountable. And I know that probably wouldn't work for every single company, but that's what immediately came to mind for me when you mentioned that. It sounds very a buff, buffer style, but but on the DEI side. And my favorite one to date is a company called Bench Accounting, who I think are Canadian. I can't remember, but um, Bench Accounting have a DEI page. And what's just awesome about this is they talk about their initiatives, their commitments, but that, that's where most companies stop. And Bench actually talk actively about where they're failing. Here's our commitments. Here's where we're actually not doing very well at all and what we're doing about it, which is really refreshing because no company does brilliantly at diversity on the whole, but most companies pretend that they do. And it actually builds a heap of trust with applicants and employees when they can see you saying, you know what, we, we know we're not doing well. We know what we need to do better. And these are the things we are trying to do, which I think is great anyway. And I think a lot of people buy into that. I love that comment that most companies, these are my words, not yours. Most companies are bad at diversity yeah. and inclusion. You know, that's a hard truth that I completely agree with, but it's also something that 
people don't want to say, especially people in the HR community. And so I think that over time, the more companies that are choosing this side of the line in the sand, the transparent side of the line in the sand, I think it opens up more and more space for people to be on board and CEOs and other executives to be on board with vigilant focus on transparency. 20 years ago, I don't think many people would have been on board or even predicted that this would be a major area of focus for HR, but times have changed for the better. And I think it's so important for a company to be transparent, not only from the innovation engine, but also the revenue engine. But guess what powers all of that? People, people power all of it. And so without transparency, it's very difficult to have trust. And without trust, it's hard to have any kind of meaningful, authentic culture, in my opinion. And so, but I still think to your point, this is a movement and you need the first crazy followers and then the movement builds from there. And I'm definitely on board and wanting to be part of this movement, but I think it's important to recognize that not all CEOs are there. And so if you're engaging with a CEO and let's say that there have been some challenges regarding transparency, maybe our engagement survey, ask questions around transparency or collaboration. There are other ways that you can get, you can identify the lack of transparency in your people data set. And so I pitched that to my CEO and I'm like, hey, look here, look at our, our most recent results. And it's, we're like four surveys over that we see this as a low scoring area, really think we need to invest. I've got my CEO on board. I now pitch to the executive leadership team. They're on board. And so where do you see companies typically starting? Like, what is the platform to jump off of? Is it tying it to your engagement survey data? How do you begin to create kind of campaigns to like increase awareness around like, hey, this is why this is an area of focus for us. And then from there, actually start to implement transparency like what in kind of day-to-day tactical terms like what does that process look like if you partner with open org or just the companies that are doing this on their own that you see yeah good question so on a general basis it always starts with let's make sure we're internally transparent first before we can look at any sort of external transparency so build that trust internally with employees on, on whatever you hopefully intend to externalize at some point now there's a heap of areas i think the first one that most companies are forced into in the US, of course, from a legal standpoint, is compensation. So that actually is where a lot of US companies, I would suggest, are starting at the moment is let's tackle this thing that's becoming a legal requirement. And that, that can be the basis and our jumping off point where they tend to probably feed into after that is things like career development, performance, calibration. These things tie very, very closely into compensation. So there's a bit of a dominoes effect there for companies that are having to embrace pay transparency and tackle that. There's other factors that come into that or other areas as well. That's not happening in the UK so much. The UK don't have any legal requirements, for example, to have to go and do this. There's some really cool companies embracing it and doing it anyway. But where I see more of it, more transparency internally in the UK is actually companies starting to share things like financials with with employees on like all hands meetings and things like that, where some companies are getting it wrong, perhaps is understanding that there's a difference between just sharing information with employees and making sure they actually understand that information as well. Not everyone immediately understands things like ARR and and burn rate and runway and and things like that. And every employee out there is very capable of understanding it, but companies, whether they're prepared to teach that or not is different. So there's a bit of a, a journey for companies to go through. It's not just a case of information overload with things like financials, but it's also making sure people understand the context and the why behind sharing that. So I'd say that's like, probably the starting point for a lot of companies in the UK. It's internal, but it's probably something around financials and trying to commit probably more to some transparency around decision-making, not involvement in decision-making necessarily, but transparency around these are the decisions we're making and why. Oh yeah. And so many companies are so crap at just decision-making in general, and then nothing is ever communicated. It's like, how do we even get here? And then time goes by and no one can even remember how we got like, yeah, it can be a complete shit show. Excuse my language. 
on the decision-making front. And so I'm guessing some of these are financials, career development. I'm guessing some of these are part of the 35 areas that you mentioned earlier. What are some of the other kind of more unexpected things that you're looking at? Yeah, there's some really eye-opening ones. And this is one of my favorite parts, actually, about companies who take our assessment. And then there's always comments afterwards to say, this was really useful because there's things on here I just wouldn't have ever thought about. You know, you focus so heavily on pay. But we've put things on there like employee to manager ratio, which like seems like a weird one, right? But actually, if you can show that to applicants, they get an idea as to like, what's the average team size here that I'm going into? And we all know through studies, there's like perfect team sizes on average that you can go into. And if, if I'm actually going into a team size of 20 people, what does that mean culturally? How am I going to get time with the manager? What's my development look like? Or is actually a really, really, you know, small team? Am I going to get lots of time? So culturally, people care and applicants do actually care about the type of team they're going into. Meeting philosophy is a big one that we've come up with. People care deeply about how much time they're going to spend in meetings nowadays. Is it eight hours a week? Is it one hour a week? Do they have a zero hours policy towards meetings? Generalizing again, probably, but I think it's especially important in like product and, and engineering world where people appreciate some focused time in their diaries rather than back-to-back meetings. So sharing that externally is really, really helpful to help people self-select in or out of a, of a culture. Internal mobility is another one we've put on that. Not many companies talk about it or share it. It's becoming a big talking point though. It's a big, big factor for Gen Z coming into to the business world, they don't want to be stuck in one role forever. They're, they'll move employees if they need to very, very quickly. But moving in between roles in, in laterally in companies is a big opportunity for their career development. So trying to get companies to talk more about the opportunities they give people, even if they're not great, tell people what that looks like in your business. And another one is, is Team Readme's, not widely used necessarily, but trying to encourage that idea of adopting like user manuals for not just hiring managers, but colleagues. And we think this is a really powerful one to embrace if you're going to do it externally. Giving an applicant a really in-depth user manual for their potential manager to understand not just what's on their LinkedIn profile and like, you know, you don't you can't get much from a picture and a some some career history, but details about how I communicate, how I feedback, how I make decisions, what I'm like on a bad day, what I'm like on a good day. These sorts of things really inform applicants. And and we all know that managers are, are the one of the most crucial elements to someone staying or leaving staying in a job or leaving a job so can you give applicants more information about that particular manager that for me is vital first of all i think that that may have been the first time i've heard a british person say gen z and i i love it i love it i love gen (laughs) z and so and and second again the last point on and i didn't quite hear i think team assessments or team information is what yeah. you're saying team read yeah. read me's yeah or use a manual team read me's okay yeah and so you know one of the the programs that my my partner led was team assessments and at her company they used uh, she implemented they used uh deloitte's business chemistry and which is a quite good one like obviously i'm i'm biased cuz of the work <laughs> she did but yeah. the CHRO loved and the, the executive team loved the work so much that they decided to post anyone that had taken that assessment to post their profile. And I forget what it is, it's like driver. They're all kind of the same. My mind always goes to the disc profile for some reason, mm-hmm. but they approved adding that to their global internet for every employee that's taken the assessment to add that detail. I think we, we're going to see more and more of that. Like, you know, obviously... Josh Burson has, you know, wrote a whole book about the power of teams and, Mm. you know, a whole philosophy around how companies can be more successful focusing on the success of a team. And so, but that all comes back to how does Daniel work? How does Adam work? How does Steven work? And then how do we all, knowing our styles, like how do we all work together? So I love that last item. And so before I hand over, because we are, we're deep into the conversation now, there are a couple other things we want to talk about. What's the benchmark? Who's the best out there when it comes to transparency? Who are we all striving to become? Is there a company or two that you think of that is like the platinum standard? I posted about this this morning, weirdly enough. So I love different companies for different reasons. And I think there's some names out there that we all know of. You, You talked about Whereby, who are like, an OG when it comes to transparency and, and and some of the work that they've done. So I was trying to think of a couple that maybe are, are lesser known for people. I think I've got to be careful having favorites because I've, I've worked with a lot of really cool companies. But honestly, one of my my favorites of all time, probably not 
necessarily a very well-known company globally, but it's a company called Posthog. Posthog, for anyone who hasn't seen them before, should check them out. They've got the most incredible handbook. They open source their product roadmap. So, which is a brave thing to do. Lots of people would be secretive and say, I don't want my competitors seeing what we're working on, what we're doing, what's coming up the track. But they're an example of really, really transparent culture. And the way that they talk about their culture, the values, their behaviors, how you thrive in their business and who doesn't thrive in their business is is really, really cool. So they're one that I, I really, really love. Another, which many people will have heard of, but a huge fan of is Juro. Juro, UK-based business mostly, but they're just gold standard for me. They've, they've got an amazing employee handbook, which is public, and the depth that they go into around almost everything, their, their diversity and inclusion, their career development, their compensation. One of my favorite things actually is they've got like a, they've built a Kanban board on Notion for their benefits, but you can deep dive into specific benefits and even to the point where you can see the policy documents for their medical cover. And that's really, it might seem like a something that no one's ever going to do, but there's people out there who have medical conditions that are really rare and sometimes aren't covered by certain medical insurance. And these are the things that we don't expect every business to get to, but actually that intentionality and understanding of we want to be as inclusive as possible for people and give them the information, I think is unreal. And the third, actually, that I've already mentioned earlier is bench accounting, who you hear the word accounting, you might not necessarily think super exciting business, but Honestly, if anyone hasn't seen Bench Accounting, go and have a look at their website, go dig around. Some of the stuff that they've got on there is brilliant and their, their approach to things like diversity and how transparent they are with it is, is, is amazing. So I'll stop there because I, I could rattle on for hours, but there's some really cool companies out there doing some really interesting things. I feel like I'd be remiss to not give you an opportunity to plug some of the free resources that OpenOrg has. So can you quickly share some of the resources that people can find on your website? Quickest route to it is is a website. So it's openorg.fyi forward slash resources. Uh, we've got a heap of resources we've built over the last few months since we launched. I think there's 11 or 12 on there now. The biggest one that's really gone viral so far has been our employee handbook template. So this is a curation of, of some of the best public handbooks out there. So we've pulled them together. We've picked out our favorite pages from all of these amazing handbooks, and we've created a, a template that people can use, but not just as a blank template with sections with it's a template with real live pages from other companies handbooks so you can actually use these other pages as inspiration for for how you do things that's one of the big big ones we've done but we've also made a hiring playbook we've built an onboarding cookbook we've called it so if you're trying to work out your onboarding process we've got all this open source and curation and, and inspo from all these companies that how they do it so you can create your own and yeah there's we've done open job ad templates and, and career site templates and all sorts of stuff. So there's a treasure trove of, of things there for people to dig through. And then last thing I wanted to quickly cover before we move to rapid fire questions. So I think when we last met up, you had just completed your first US cohort. Well, I guess I'll just stop there. How many cohorts in total have you done? As of tomorrow, we'll have just finished our first three. So we're running two uh, in parallel now. Congratulations. And thank you. I guess like what has been your one or two biggest takeaways from completing these first three cohorts? It's been the yeah, obvious one, actually. Well-being, current state of well-being in the people and HR world has struck me a little bit. I think everyone in other roles within companies obviously can get stressed and burnt out and, and things get full on. But it's quietly been a little bit worrying to me. Whenever we get together on calls with these cohorts, these people leaders, you can just feel the stress, the, the burnout. And some of our calls completely go off piste and end up being like therapy sessions and, you know, uh, well-being sessions for these people leaders, which I love. It's awesome to connect with them, but it's also a worry, you know, and there's a lot of talk around the people world at the moment about who looks after HR. The well-being of people in HR as a function, I think is is a concern, but but something that we've really enjoyed trying to help with and be there to, to it wasn't an intention of the cohorts, but it's definitely been something I've seen. We've talked about this already as well. Influencing of leadership has been a big topic that's come up that I didn't necessarily expect to be such a strong topic throughout running through all of these individuals that have been on cohorts. But the other one is obviously passion for transparency, which is such a positive. Um, even if companies that they're working at aren't ready for full-blown transparency and openness yet, the support we've had in our first three, four months and the people that have joined our cohorts has blown us away, honestly, that there's so much passion in the people in HR world for being more open, being more transparent. It will happen and they will get there. 
companies will change, but it's just going to take a little bit longer for some, some, but it's amazing to see that there's that passion there. I love that. You are at least a dozen of the, what I'll call like partners or providers to companies and to the HR community Mm. that has said like, yeah, every time I, I connect and have like my mentoring conversation or our coaching conversation, it just ends up being like a therapy session. And so our hearts and our like all the positive vibes and energy right now to all the people leaders out there, because it is still a struggle. And, you know, I, uh, as my oldest daughter would say, nervo sided about becoming a people leader, because it's like, uh, I'm very curious what my experience will be like, because I'm going to be faced with the same challenges. But yet, I also think I'm bringing a different skill set, having been a startup CEO. So it'll be interesting, but I'm definitely there's a nervous side to that, the nervo sided. But with that being said, we're at that time in the conversation, Adam, where we have to turn the corner and bring this discussion to a close. But before we do that, we have a couple more traditions. The next is what we call standard, our standard rapid fire questions. Every guest is the same set of questions. Are you ready for this? You ready to yeah. do this? Awesome. Yeah. I'm very excited to hear your responses. So first up, question on how do you define a modern people leader? What are the traits and characteristics? This is probably isn't anything new. I'm sure you've got some trends appearing now, but I'd say very data focused commercially, but balanced with incredibly high EQ. And that's a hard blend to find, but I think that's going to define people who succeed and thrive in a modern people role. I love that. I love that. Question two, if you could go back in time and talk to a 22-year-old Adam, what career advice would you give yourself and why? Trust your gut and act sooner. Ooh, love anything more to share there? I'm not great with candor. I'm a people pleaser. I try and tiptoe around things sometimes, and that, that means you delay doing certain things when your gut is telling you the whole time, sort it out, do it. So yeah, I think that without going into detail, there's times where I could have trusted my gut and just bite the bullet and do it. Yeah, the damn people pleaser trait. I also have that, the need yeah. for approval, people, whatever you want to call it. And ah, uh, but yeah, that definitely resonates with me. The last question, is there anything you believe to be true about the world of work, but don't yet have the data to support? Transparency improves profitability, happiness, engagement, all the rest. Open all don't have the data yet. We're, we're a few months in, we're very early stage. There's studies out there by people like Gallup and so on and so forth who have linked transparency to profitability. So we're leaning on things like that, but actually our focus is fast forward five, 10 years, we will have that data and we'll be able to strongly link more transparent organizations to healthier organizations and more profitable ones. And when you do have that data, please come back and yeah. join us on the Modern People Leader and let's riff on that. We will. All right, last question for you. Who should we bring onto the show next? There's two I've got. And actually, for all I know, you might have had them on here by now. But um, one is a guy called Thomas Forstner, who's VP of People and Talent at Duro. Super transparent business, amazing company, brilliant guy. So please get him on. He'd be a brilliant, brilliant guest. The other is a guy called Pat Caldwell. He's the chief people officer, worked at some amazing companies, very, very progressive, forward thinking, done some amazing things well before anyone else has in the world of work. So yeah, he'd be an amazing guest for you to get on if you could. Those are great recommendations. We'll be sure to reach out. All right. So we are on to our last tradition of the show, which is one word or phrase close. So we all respond with a word or phrase from the episode that we want to close with. It could be anything that comes to mind. And I'll go first because I already have it in my head, inspired. So just to hear your story and the story of your co-founder and how culture was something that y'all had been geeking out on for, I don't know, would you say 12 years before y'all started this company together? It just inspired me to, we need to move fast on this problem that we've identified and we've been obsessing over the last few months. So it just felt like it gave me another, I guess, more of a sense of urgency. So inspired which is perfect timing because we have our 2024 planning in a couple of weeks, Daniel. So there we go. <laughs> I'm going to go with progress because I said it a couple of times, like, man, like 20 years ago, we wouldn't even be here talking. Well, podcasts didn't even exist back then. But you know, if they did, we definitely would not have spent an hour plus chatting about corporate transparency or business transparency. We got to take the wins when we can get them, right? And so just reflecting on that, we have made progress. And I love what you guys are doing, Adam. 
And I'm so stoked that you agreed to join us on the show. We don't meet with a lot of startups. We don't meet with startups as much as we used to. And to Daniel's point, there's something refreshing and reinvigorating. That would have been my second word. You stole my word as well. You mentioned it. Mine was going to be stoked. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, I'm so, so pleased to um, have gotten to chat to you guys. Like the, the people you've had on the show previously, like uh, proper fanboy of some of these names and would never expect to get anywhere near lucky to meet a couple of them recently which has been amazing but yeah it's so so cool to be able to join you guys chat and never expected to be in this position which is really cool so thank you for having me well thank you for joining us it's equally as cool on on our end and i'm 100 percent sure this isn't the last time that we're going to be speaking so be prepared for a dm on linkedin here in the next few weeks yep. or month or whenever i reach out but we definitely have to meet back up keen definitely keen it's been an absolute blast so thanks for joining us all righty Bye, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Modern People Leader. We really, really appreciate it. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star rating. It would mean the world to us. And connect with us on LinkedIn. We want to know what you think about the show. And you can find links to both of our profiles in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and see you on the next episode.